Chapter Five of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clements Dane. Chapter Five. One of Alwyn's duties was the conduct of a small extra class consisting of girls who for reasons of stupidity ill-health or defective grounding fell too far below the average of knowledge in their respective classes she devoted certain afternoons in the week to coaching them and was considered to be unusually successful in her methods she could be extremely patient and had quaint and unorthodox ways of insinuating facts into her pupils minds as she told elspeth she invented their memories for them she was sufficiently imaginative to realize their difficulties, yet sufficiently young to dream of developing, in due course, all her lame ducks into swans. She was intensely interested in hearing how her coaching had succeeded. Her pleasure at an amended place in class was so genuine, her disappointment at a collapse so comically real, yet so devoid of contempt, so tinged with conviction that it was anybody's fault but the culprit's, that either attitude was an incentive to real effort like claire she did not suffer fools gladly but unlike claire she had not the moral courage to be ruthless stupidity seemed as terrible to her as physical deformity she treated it with the same touch of motherliness the same instinctive desire to spare it realization of its own unsightliness her rather lovable cowardice brought a mixed reward she stifled in sick rooms yet invalids liked her well she was frankly envious of Claire's circle of brilliant girls, and as inevitably surrounded by inarticulate adorers, who bored her mightily, but whose clumsy affection she was too kind-hearted to suppress. It had been well for Alwyn, however, that her following was of the duller portion of the school. This Claire could endure, could countenance. Such boy bishopry could not affect her own sovereignty, and her subject's consequence increased her own. But to see Alwyn swaying, however unconsciously, minds of a finer type would not have been easy for Claire. She had grown very fond of Alwyn, but the sentiment was proprietary. She could derive no pleasure from her that was not personal, and, in its most literal sense, selfish. She was unmaternal to the core. She could not see human property admired by others with any sensation but that of a double jealousy. She was subtly angered that Alwyn could attract, yet was caught herself in the net of those attractions, and unable to endure to watch them spread for any but herself. Alwyn, quite unconscious of the trait, had at first done herself harm by her unfeigned interest in Claire's circle. It took the elder woman some suspicious weeks to realize that Alwyn lacked completely her own domptose instinct, her craving for power, that she was as innocent of knowledge of her own charm as unwedded Eve that her impulse to Claire was an impulse of the freshest, sweetest hero-worship. But the realization came at last, and Claire opened her hungry heart to her, and, warmed by Alwyn's affection, wondered that she had hesitated so long. Alwyn never guessed that she had been doubted. Claire was proud of her genuine skill as a character reader, had been a little pleased to give Alwyn proof of her penetration when occasion arose, and Alwyn, less trained, less critical, thought her omniscient, and never dreamed that the motives of her obscurest actions, the sources of her most veiled references, were not plain to Claire. Secure of comprehension, 
she went her way. Anyone in whom Claire was interested must needs attract her, so she took pains to become intimate with Claire's adorers, from a very real sympathy with their appreciation of Claire, whom she no more grudged to them than a priestess would grudge the unveiling of her goddess to the initiate. She received their confidences, learned their secrets, fanned the flame of their enthusiasms. Too lately a schoolgirl herself, too innocent and ignorant to dream of danger, she did her loyal utmost in furtherance of the cult, measuring the artificial and unbalanced emotions she encountered by the rule of her own saner affection, and, in her desire to see her friend appreciated, in all good faith utilized her degree of authority to encourage what an older woman would have recognized and combated as incipient hysteria. Gradually she became, through her frank sympathy, combined with her slightly indeterminate official position, the intermediary, the interpreter of Claire to the feverish school. Claire herself, her initial distrust over her, found this useful. She could afford to be moody, erratic, whimsical, to be extravagant in her praises and reproofs, to deteriorate, at times, into a caricature of her own bizarre personality, with the comfortable assurance that there was ever a magician in her wake to steady her tottering shrines, mix oil with her vitriol, and prove her pinchbeck gold. Fatal, this relaxation of effort, to a woman of Claire's type. Love of some sort was vital to her. Of this her surface personality was dimly, ashamedly aware, and would, if challenged, have frigidly denied. But the whole of her larger self knew its need, and saw to it that that need was satisfied. Claire, unconscious, had taught Claire, conscious, that there must be effort, constant, straining effort at cultivation of all her alluring qualities, at concealment of all in her that could repulse, effort that all appearances of complete success must never allow her to relax. She knew well the evanescent character of a schoolgirl's affection, so well that when her pupils left the school she seldom tried to retain her hold upon them. Their letters would come thick as autumn leaves at first. She rarely answered, or after long intervals, and the letters dwindled and ceased. She knew that, in the nature of things, it must be so, and had no wish to prolong the farewells. Also, her interest in her correspondence usually died first. To sustain it required their physical nearness, but every new year filled the gaps left by the old, stimulated Claire to fresh exertion. So the lean years went by. Then came vehement Alwyn, no schoolgirl, yet more youthful and ingenuous than any mistress had right to be, loving with all the discrimination of a fine mind and all the ardor of an affectionate child. Here was no question of a fleeting devotion that must end as the school days ended. Here was love for Claire at last, a widow's cruise to last her for all time. Claire thanked the gods of her unbelief and, relaxing all effort, settled herself to enjoy to the full the cushioning sense of security, the mock despot of their pleasant earlier intercourse becoming, as she bound Alwyn ever more closely to her, albeit unconsciously, a very real tyrant indeed. Yet she had no intention of weakening her hold on any lesser member of her chosen coterie. Alwyn was too ingenuous, too obviously subject to her own free impulse, to entirely satisfy. Claire's love of power had its morbid moments when a struggling victim, had averted, pleased her. There was never, among the newcomers, a child, self-absorbed, nonchalant or rebellious, 
who passed a term unmolested by Miss Hardell. Egoism aroused her curiosity, her suspicion of hidden lands, virgin, ripe for exploration. Indifference piqued her. A flung gauntlet she welcomed with frank amusement. She had been a rebel in her own time, and had ever a thrill of sympathy for the mutinies she relentlessly crushed. War, personal war, delighted her. She was a mistress of tactics, and the certainty of eventual victory gave zest to her campaigns. She did not realize that the strain upon her childish opponents was very great. The finer, the more sensitive the character, the more complete the eventual defeat, the more permanent its effects. Claire was pitiless after victory. Not till then did she examine into the nature thus enslaved. Seldom did she find it worth the trouble of the skirmish. In most cases she gave semi-liberty. Enough of smiles to keep the children feverishly at work to please her. The average of achievement in her classes was astounding, and enough of indifference to prevent them from becoming a nuisance. To the few that pleased her fastidious taste, she gave of her best, lavishly as she had given to Alwyn. There are women today, old girls of the school, who owe Claire Harthill the best things of their lives, their wide knowledge, their original ideas, their hopeful futures and happy memories, to whom she was an inspiration incarnate. The Claire they remember is not the Claire that Elspeth knew, that Alwyn learned to know, that Claire herself, one bitter night, faced and blanched at. But which of them had knowledge of the true Claire? Who shall say? In Claire's favorite class was a certain Louise Denny. She was thirteen, nearly three years below the average of the class in age. How far beyond it, in all else, not even Claire realized. Claire had discovered her, as she phrased it, in the limbo of the lower third. She had been paying one of her surprise visits to the afternoon extra needlework classes. The possibility of her occasional appearance, book in hand, was responsible for the school's un-English proficiency in hemming, darning, and kindred mysteries. To read aloud to the children carefully edited excerpts from Poe's tales, had forgotten her copy and had been shyly offered another, private property from Louise Denny's desk. Thereon must Alwyn, for a week or two, resign perforce her lower third literature classes to Claire, intent on her blue rose. Louise's compositions had been read. Claire and Alwyn spent a long evening over them, weighing, comparing, discussing. Claire could be exquisitely tender, could keep all patient vigil over an unfolding mind, provided that the calyx concealed a rare enough blossom. Louise was encouraged, her shyness swept aside, her ideas developed, her knowledge tested. She was fed, too, cautiously, on richer and richer food, stray evening lectures, picture galleries with Alwyn, pettiest of Ciceronis, the freedom of the library, and long talks with Claire. Finally Claire, bearing down all opposition, transplanted her to the lower fifth, containing at that time some brilliantly clever girls. Louise justified her by speedily capturing and doggedly retaining the highest place in the class. Clara was delighted. Her critics, there were some mistresses who vaguely disapproved of the experiment, were refuted, and the class, already needing no spur, outdoing itself in its efforts to compete with the intruder, swept the board at an important public examination. On the morning of the announcement of results, 
Claire entered her former room radiant. It was a low, many-windowed room, with desks ranged single file along the walls. The class being a small one, the girls were accustomed to sit for their lessons at a large oval table at the upper end of the room. Beside the passage doorway, there was a smaller one that led into the studio and was never used by the children. Claire, however, would sometimes enter by it, but so seldom that they invariably forgot to keep watch. Claire enjoyed the occasional views she thus obtained of her unconscious and relaxed subjects and the piquancy of their uncensored conversation. She enjoyed still more the sudden hush, the crisp thrill that ran through their groups when they became aware of her, observant in the doorway. On the morning in question, she had watched them for some little while. Before each girl lay her open exercise book and school edition of Browning. They were deep in discussion of their work, very eager upon some question. By the empty chair at the head of the table sat Marin Hughes, blonde and placid, a rounded elbow on her neatly written theme, that her neighbor was trying to pull away, to compare with her own well-linked manuscript. This neighbor, one Agatha Middleton, was dark, gaunt, with restless eyes and restless tongue. She was old for her fifteen years, and had been original until she discovered that her originality appealed to Miss Hardell. Since then she had imitated her own mannerisms, and was rapidly degenerating into an eccentric. The law of opposites had decreed that the sedate Marian should be her bosom friend. They went up the school together, an incongruous yet well-suited pair, for they were so unlike that there could be no rivalry. Marian was alternately amused and dazzled by the pyrotechnic Agatha. Agatha's respect for Marian's common sense was pleasantly tempered by a conviction of superior mental agility. Finally, they were united by their common devotion to their former mistress. Whether it would have occurred to Marian, unprompted, to admire Miss Hardell, is uncertain. Her affections were domestic and calm, but adoration was in the air, and she had not sufficient originality to be unfashionable. She was caught, too, in Agatha's whirlwind emotions, and ended by worshipping Claire conscientiously and sincerely. Claire, on her side, respected her, as she told Alwyn, for her painstaking and intelligent stupidity, and, recognizing a nature too worthy for neglect, yet too lymphatic to be suitable for experiments, was uniformly kind to her. Agatha she had reveled in for six weeks, and had since more or less ignored as a bore. Below the pair sat a spectacled student, predestined to scholarships and a junior mistress-ship. Opposite, between giggling twins, a vivid little Jewess, whose showy work was due to the same vanity that tied her curls with giant bows and over-corseted her matured figure. At the foot of the oval, directly opposite Clara's vacant chair, stood Louise, flushed and excited, chanting low-voicedly a snatch of verse. During a lull in the hubbub, Marion called to her down the table, how many pages? Louise flushed. She was still a little in awe of these elders whom she had outstripped. She rapidly counted the leaves of her essay and held up both hands, smiling shyly. Marion exclaimed, Ten? You marvel. I only got to seven. I simply didn't understand it. Whatever did you find to say? Agatha fell upon the query. That's nothing. I've done twenty-two, she cried triumphantly and turned to face the shower of comments. Miss Harper will bless you. She said last time that you thought ink and ideas were synonymous. Agatha only writes three words to a line anyway. They liked her, 
that she was of the type whose imperiousness provokes snubs. Well, I thought I shouldn't get it done under forty. An essay on the Dark Tower. It's the beastliest yet. The ancient mariner was nothing to it. I've made an awful hash, didn't you? I understood all right when she read it and explained. It's so absurd not to let one take notes. I've been years at it. Fortunately, she said we needn't learn it, Louise and I, with all our extra work. An unimaginative hockey captain fluttered her pages distractedly. Oh, but I have. Louise looked up quickly. Why? The hockey captain opened her eyes and mouth. Oh, I rather wanted to. The little Jewess giggled. Déjà, she murmured. She did not love Claire. Marin returned to the subject with her usual perseverance. Did you understand it, kid? Louise stammered a little. When she reads it, and when I say it aloud, I think I do. It was impossible to write it down. Let's see what you have put. Agatha, by a quick movement, possessed herself of Louise's exercise book. Louise, shy and desperate, strove silently with her neighbors, who, curious, held her back, while Agatha, holding the book at arm's length, recited from it in a high mocking voice. Chilled Roland to the dark tower came. Description, 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 for three, five, seven pages. You've let yourself go, Louise. Ah, here we are. The meaning of the poem. Now we're getting to it. Shakespeare and Browning may have known all the real history of Chilled Roland, the reason of his quest, the secret of the horror of the tower, but we are left in ignorance. That does not matter, for, as we read, the inner meaning of the terrible poem kills off curiosity. Shuddering, we close the book and pray to God that Chilled Roland's journey may never be ours, that for our adventurous souls, night erranting through this queer life, there may never come a choice of ways, a turning from the pleasant high road, to go upon a hideous journey, till, crossing the plains of loneliness, fear, and sorrow, we face the hills of madness and enter the dark tower of that despair, which is our soul's death, with capital letters galore. What a sentence! Here, shut up, you spitfire. Louise had wrenched herself free and flung herself upon Agatha in a white heat of anger. Give it me. You've no right. You've no right, she gasped. Her shyness had gone. She was blazing with indignation. Agatha, the book held teasingly out of reach, affected to search for her place. Louise raised her clenched fist desperately. A cool hand caught her wrist in a firm yet kindly grip. A hush fell on the voluble group, and Agatha collapsed into an apologetic non-entity. Claire, who had entered in her usual noiseless fashion, stood a moment between the combatants, watching the effect of her appearance. Her hand shifted to Louise's bony little shoulder. Through the thin blouse she could feel the driven blood pulsing. She did not move till she felt the child regaining comparative calm, when, giving her a gentle push towards her place, she walked slowly to the head of the table and seated herself. The class watched her furtively. It was quite aware that all rules of decorum had been transgressed, that pains and penalties would be in order with any other mistress. But with Miss Hardall there was always glorious uncertainty, and Miss Hardall did not look annoyed. Little gestures began to break the tension, and Agatha, relieved, smiled a shade too broadly. Instantly Claire closed with her. She began blandly. Agatha, I thought you could read aloud better than that. You are not doing your work justice. 
Pass me your essay. It's Louise's, said Agatha, helplessly. Ah, I see. And you kindly read it to us for her? It's a pity you didn't understand what you read. But an excuse, of course. Louise must not expect too much. Agatha flung up her head angrily. Oh, I understood it all right. I thought it was silly. You did? Read me your own. Now? Certainly. Now Claire, as she corrected and commented upon the weekly essays, did occasionally, if the mood took her, read extracts, humorous chiefly, therefrom. But it had never been customary for a pupil to read her own work aloud. Agatha had the pioneer spirit, but she was no fool. She comprehended that. With Claire inimical, she could climb no higher than the pillory. She fell back upon the tradition of the school. Oh, Miss Hardell, I can't. Why not? No one ever does. Claire waited. Agatha protested readily, her fear of ridicule outweighing her fear of Claire. Miss Hardell, I simply couldn't. Before everybody? All this tosh? I mean, all this stuff I wrote? It's a written essay. I couldn't make it sound right aloud. Claire waited. It's not good enough, Miss Hardell. Honestly. And we never have. You've never made us. I couldn't. Claire waited. Agatha twisted her hands uneasily. The schoolgirl's shyness that its physical misery was upon her. I don't want to, Miss Hardell. I can't. It's not fair to have one's stuff. To be laughed at. To be... She subsided just in time. The class sat, breathless, all eyes on Claire. And Claire waited waited till defiance faded to unease, unease to helplessness, till the girl, overborne by the utter silence, gave way, and dropping her eyes to her exercise, fluttering its pages in angry embarrassment, finally, with a giggle of pure nervousness, embarked on the opening sentence. Claire cut through the clustering adjectives. Stand up, please. Resistance was over. She rose sullenly. She had been proud of her essay, had worked at it sincerely, knew its periods by heart, but her pleasure in it was destroyed, as completely, she realized, as she had destroyed that of the Louise. More, for Louise had found a champion. That she recognized jealously. Unjust! Her essay was no worse, read soberly, yet she was forced to render it ridiculous. She read a couple of pages in hurried jerks, stumbling over the illegibilities of her own handwriting, balked by Clara's interpolations. She heard her own voice, high-pitched and out of control, perverting her meaning, felt the laden sentences breaking up into chaos on her lips. In her flurry, she pronounced familiar words amiss, Clara's calm voice carefully correcting. Once she heard a chuckle. Two pages. Three. Only that. She remembered that she had boasted of twenty, seventeen to be read yet, and they were all laughing. To have to stand there, three pages, but as Child Roland turned round, Louder, please, said Claire. But as Child Roland turned round, and even Marion was laughing, turned round to look once more back to the high road, and slower to the high road, she stopped suddenly, a lump in her throat. Go on, Agatha. To the high road, the letters danced up and down mistily. 
to the high road where the cripple, where the cripple. Oh, Miss Hartle, she cried imploringly, isn't it enough? It was surrender. Claire nodded. Yes, you may sit down now. Your essay, please. Thank you. And now I'll read you once more what Louise has to say on the same subject. I dare say you'll find, Agatha, that you were almost as unfair to her essay as you were to your own. And she smiled her sudden dazzling smile. Agatha, against her will, smiled tremulously back. Claire, with a glance at the little figure, huddling at the foot of the table, began to read. The essay, for all its schoolgirl slips and extravagances, was unusual. The thought embodied in it, though tinged with morbidity, striking and matured. Claire did it more than justice. Her beautiful voice made music of the crude sentences, revealed, embellished, glorified. Her own interest growing as she read infected the class. She swept them along with her, mutually enthusiastic. She ended abruptly, her voice like the echoes of a deep bell. Marion broke the little pause. I like that, she said, as if surprised at herself. So did I, Claire was pleased. She dipped her pen in red ink and initialed the foot of the essay. That was good work, Louise. Now, the others. But Louise, shy and glowing, broke in. But it wasn't all mine, Miss Hardell, not a bit. Claire looked at her, half frowning. Not yours? Your handwriting? Oh, I wrote it, but you've made it different. I hadn't meant it like that. Claire raised a quizzical eyebrow. I have misinterpreted? Louise was too much in earnest to be fluttered. I only mean, you made it sound so beautiful that it was like listening to, to an organ. I didn't bother about the words while you read. It was all colors and gold, like the things in the Venetian room. You know, the meaning didn't matter. But I did mean something, not half so good, of course, only quite different. Horrid and grisly like the plane he traveled through, chilled Roland. It ought to have sounded harsh and starved, like rats pattering. What I meant, not beautiful. I see. Claire was interested. She was quite aware that she had used her magnificent voice to impress arbitrarily her opinion of Louise's work upon the class, that Louise, impressionable as she knew her to be, should have yet detected the trick, amused her greatly. So you think I didn't understand your essay? Louise's shy smile was very pleasant. Oh, Miss Hartle, I'm not so stupid. It's only that I can't have got the... the... atmosphere the girl in spectacles helped her. The atmosphere that I meant to. So you put in a different one to help it, and it did. But it wasn't what I meant. Claire glanced at her inscrutably and began to score the other essays. She would get at Louise's meaning in her own way. She skimmed a couple, Agatha, be it recorded, receiving the coveted initials, before she spoke again. Didn't I tell you to learn Child Roland, too? Ah, I thought so. Begin, Marion, while I finish these. Two verses. Her pen scratched on as Marion's expressionless voice rose, fell, and finished. Agatha continued, jarringly dramatic. Two more followed her. Then Claire put down her pen. For Mark. There was a warning undertone in Louise's colorless voice that crept across the room like a shadow. Claire lifted her head and stared at her. For Mark. 
No sooner was I fairly found, pledged to the plain, after a pace or two, than, pausing to throw backward a last view, o'er the safe road, twas gone. Gray plain all round, nothing but plain to the horizon's bound. I might go on, not else remained to do. There was horror in the whispering voice, the accents of one bowed beneath intolerable burdens, sick with the knowledge of nearing doom, gay with the flippancy of despair. Louise was looking straight before her, vacant as a medium, her hands lying laxly in her lap. Claire made a quick sign to her neighbor to be silent, and the strained voice rose anew. Claire listened perplexedly. She told herself that this was sheer technique. Some trick had been played. She was harboring some child actress of parts, only to be convinced of folly. She knew all about Louise. Besides, she had heard the child read aloud before. Good, clean, intelligent delivery. But nothing like this. This was uncanny. Uncanny yet magnificent. The artist in her settled down to enjoyment. Yet she was uneasy, too. And just as far as ever from the end... The creeping voice toiled on across the haunted plain, growing louder, clearer, nearer. Vision was forced upon Claire, serene in her form room, swift and sudden vision. She not only heard, every sense responded. At her feet lay the wasteland of the poem. She smelt the dank air, shrank from the clammy undergrowth, watched the bowed figure of the wandering knight, stumbling forwards doggedly, it was coming towards her, the outline blurred in the evening mist, the face hidden. The voice was surely his? Not here, when noise was everywhere. It tolled, increasing like a bell. She heard it alive with warning. Nearer, ever nearer. The bowed form was at her very feet, as the voice rose anew in despairing defiance. To view the last of me. The helmeted head was flung back. The voice echoed from hill to hill. I saw them, and I knew them all. And yet, dauntless, the slughorn to my lips I set and blew. Chill Roland to the dark tower came. The figure fell, face upwards, at her feet. Claire tore at the visor with desperate hands, for at the last line the strong voice had broken, quavering into the pitiful treble of a frightened child. The bars melted under her touch as dream things will, and she was staring down at no bearded face, but at Louise. Louise herself, with blank, dead eyes and a broken, blood-flecked face. The dead mouth smiled. You see, that was what I meant, Miss Hardell. That atmosphere. Claire roused herself with a start. Louise, rosily alive and quivering with eagerness, was waiting for her comments. She got none. Begin again, said Claire mechanically to the next girl. The brightness died out of Louise's face as she subsided in her seat. Claire, dazed as she was, saw it and was touched. The child deserved praise, should not be punished for the vagaries of Claire's own fantasy. And the monkey could recite. She shook off the impression of that recital as best she could. Curious, the freaks of the imagination... She must tell Alwyn of the adventure. Alwyn, dreamer of dreams. And Alwyn was interested in Louise, was coaching her. Perhaps she was responsible. Had coached her in that very poem? She hoped not. 
It would be interference. She did not like interference. But no, that performance was entirely original, she felt sure. There was genius in the girl, sheer genius, and but for Claire herself, she would yet be rotting undeveloped in the lower third. She was pleased with herself, pleased with Louise, too, ready to tell her so, to see the child's face light up again delightedly. She was less attractive in repose. Claire's chance came. It was the turn of the hockey captain to her sight. She appealed to Claire. Oh, Miss Hartle, you said I needn't... Louise and I, because of all our extra work, not the poem. Claire considered. I remember. Very well. But Louise... She looked at her questioningly, half smiling. When did you find the time? Louise laughed. I don't know, Miss Hartle. It found itself. Ah, and how much extra work have you, Louise? Louise reflected. All the afternoons, I think, and three evenings when I go to lectures, and, of course, gallery days when I make up in the evenings. And homework? Oh, there's heaps of time at night always. Claire smiled upon her class. Well, lower fifth, what do you think of it? The class opened its mouth. Louise has moved up four forms. She's thirteen. She's top of the class and first in today's results. You hear what her extra work is, and she finds time to learn. She'll roll in. Optional. What do you think of it? Agatha bit down her envy. It's pretty good, she said. Claire's glance approved her. Yes, so I think. It's so good that I'm more than pleased. I'm impressed, rather proud of my youngest pupil, for next time you will learn, and with one of her quick transitions she began to dictate her homework. The gong clanged as she finished. Alwyn's voice was heard in the passage, inquiring for Miss Hardale, and Claire hurried out. Followed a confused banging of books and desk lids, a tangle of fragmentary remarks, and much trampling of boots on uncarpeted boards, as one after another followed her. Within five minutes the room was bare, save for Claire's forgotten satchel at the upper end of the big table, and Louise motionless in her chair at the foot. End of chapter 5 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona